Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good to see you guys. My name is Joel, and I am one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, I'm so glad that you came. It's exciting to see all of you here. Happy November. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? It's going to be 2024. before. And when I was a teenager, that year seemed so distant. Uh, we're now beyond the point of a lot of movies that I used to watch that purported what it would be like in 2001. And now all of that is ancient history. But as we move toward the end of the year together, we have a lot to talk about as a church family regarding our collective future together. I'm excited for that. I hope you'll continue to join us over the ensuing Sundays all the way up to the Christmas season as we talk about what that future might look like. Now, it's occurred to us that we started that future conversation back on October 15th with the welcome back dinner. If you're a guest with us, uh, the church gave me a couple of months away to get, just spend some time in reading and preparation and prayer and, and recharging for the next seven years of our ministry together. Uh, I came back from, among other places, Germany, uh, a, a, a study focused around the life and the ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I presented for about an hour that evening uh, on the 15th, and many of you, this room was full of people, but apparently there were a lot of you as well who, for whatever reason, were not here, and now that you're kind of the word is getting out, you wish you had been here. So I want to put a bug in your ear about two more opportunities for this to happen. One is on Wednesday night, November 15th, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. The other is on Sunday afternoon, November 19th, so just a couple of weeks away, right after our 11 o'clock service, 12.30 to 2.00. And on that second one, we're going to have lunch and child care provided for you. Uh, and so if you would like to be a part of either or both of those, if you'd like to come back and hear it again, uh, if you, you know, are glutton for punishment and that sort of thing, asking questions after it's over, let's have a conversation together. Uh, you should have already received a registration link if you're on our email list. If not, see a member of our staff. We'll make sure that you can get signed up for that. Uh, but it's going to be really important to, especially what we're talking about over the next few weeks. We are right now in the middle of a series called Different. What does it look like for us to live the kind of life that Jesus has called us to live? And, and what would it look like to, to actually build and continue to build the kind of church that produces precisely those kinds of disciples? That really is a two-part question, isn't it? And, and so as we begin today, we're beginning part two of this series. Not merely what kind of disciples do we want to be. We've been talking about that most of the fall. But what kind of church raises up the sort of people that we're talking about? What kind of church environment, what kind of DNA is necessary in, a, in an organization, in a faith family like ours to produce people that will live questionable and hospitable lives, that will lay their lives down without thought for the cause of the gospel and for the lordship of Jesus? Like, where does that come from? And the short answer is we need to have the kind of church that's anxious to make earth more like heaven. Not just anxious to go to heaven. Not just anxious to escape to heaven, but to make earth more like heaven. Jesus told his disciples to pray that, didn't he? Your will on earth as it is in heaven. 
So, so the faithful kind of church, as we look at Matthew 6 and several other passages today, it, it, we should be praying, your will be done in Shepherdstown, Kearneysville, Martinsburg, Charlestown, Sharpsburg, Keatesville, Boonesboro, Hagerstown, Hillsboro. This entire tri-state region, if I left out your part of the world, I, I apologize. There's a lot of podunk holes around here. That's one of the reasons I, hey, I'm not being insulting. That's one of the things I love about living here. But just wherever you are, your will be done here just like it's there. And churches with that kind of passion have a particular kind of DNA that intuitively step into the mission of God. And guys, we are poised to become exactly that kind of church. We really are. By God's grace, I've been working for about eight years now in various ways to instill that DNA in our congregation, to see it permanently and indelibly mark and influence us. And, and the way we express that DNA is in four really simple letters. I talked to our student ministry about this on Wednesday night. So now you're going to get what they got on Wednesday. It's these four letters, K-D-S-C. How many of you think you could remember at least that? By the time this message is done, K-D-S-C. Those words stand for, those letters stand for kingdom, disciple, society, church. Those are our subjects over the next four weeks. Kingdom, disciple, society, church. I have chosen those words for a reason. They are in that order for a reason. And so you want to be here over the next few weeks or you want to tune in online over the next several weeks as we talk about how all of this works together and what effect that should have on who God wants us to become as his people and how those four values are going to get us there. Let me tell you why that's an important distinction. Like any other church in the Western world right now, and it may surprise you for me to say something like this, we are in an environment that fights against all four of those things. All four. And I'm not talking about the world environment. I'm not talking about the political realm. I'm not talking about the powers that be. I'm not talking about non-Christians. I mean in the Western church environment, there is a built-in culture that has been on track for a couple of decades at least, probably more than that, that fights against absolutely everything I'm going to be talking about. So you just need to get ready for that. That, that means like... what? What does that mean? Probably means I'm going to say some things that make you mad or upset you or make you go, oh my gosh, how in the world could that be? We're in an environment like that, but I want you to think about this for a moment. That environment, has it made the church better or worse? I'm going to contend it's made us largely impotent. Especially when compared to the global church. Back in May, uh, I was with some of our local net partners. We were training church planners down in Dallas. And we played a video of this awesome pastor in Indonesia. You've never heard his name. He's never written a book. He's not on television. And he is pastor of the largest evangelical church in the world. Now, how is it that you've never heard of him? How is it that those church planners, a lot of them with seminary educations, never heard of this guy? It's because our church culture in the West has become in a bubble. It's very myopic, and it has, to a large extent, become law. I'm not saying there's not good things about it, good people in it, that they're not Christian, that they don't believe the gospel. I'm just saying we have gotten so hyper-focused on ourselves, we've gotten lost in several things, actually. The Western church has gotten woefully lost in consumerism. Church 
is the place where I come to get my religious goods and services. For the most part, it's an organization that I need to benefit from, not a family that I go to war with. And what does that create? Well, it creates a lot of things. But we've gotten lost in that. What does it mean to keep the seats filled and to keep the people happy and to keep everybody from, and to keep the drama level low? And, to, and to, what does all that look like? We've, we've gotten lost in success. Church has become, in the West, by and large, not a Holy Spirit-dependent organization, but a momentum-dependent organization. Every event, every effort, everything we do has got to be bigger and better than the last one, and it surely is the devil got to be better than the church across town. Am I saying too much truth? We have become lost in megalomania because, of course, the greatest indicator of success is size. How big is it? I still get that. You go to a conference somewhere, speak somewhere. Hey, how big is your church? You know, one of the great blessings, like, I would not want to go through COVID again, but one of the great blessings of that pandemic is nobody knows anymore. I... That might have been some sovereign move of Jesus to get us to stop being so preoccupied with our size. Megachurch has become the gold standard. Even though once you get beyond the numbers of attendees, you actually get beneath the surface and start looking at, at cultural impact, megachurches have not produced any kind of transformative impact on culture at large. None. Just grow it big. Get it big. Why is that? Because we've also gotten lost in industrialization. A belief that church should operate like every other entity on the planet, which means, at least in the West, it's all about the right process. It's all about the right sequence, the right skill that produces the right results. And most of what we do in the Western church, with great success, I might add, it's not ugly. Most, a lot of it's not even bad. But most of it can be done without the Holy Spirit's involvement. I want to know if that concerns us. Did that concern us? Here's the final thing. We've gotten lost in celebrity. Celebrity. Great souls to great stars, as someone once said. We've seen in recent years the rise of the celebrity pastor. Pastors and sneakers. You know, that, that's sort of nonsense. That's the most gaudy example, but it starts when a congregation gets too dependent on one leader. And guys, here's, here's my big idea. We need to recover the soul of the church. And we do that by starting not with the C. That comes last. Did you notice that? K-D-S-C. It starts with the K. It starts with the kingdom of God. So what is that? Well, here's my working definition based on what I understand the scriptures to teach. That the, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God over all things manifested by his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Psalm 103, 19 puts it this way. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Rules. Not ruled. Not will rule. Rules. You notice that present tense nature? That's huge. I grew up in this wonderful church. So many things they taught me. They did so much more right than they did wrong. I'm not here to cap on them. But, but every time I heard that word kingdom in my church growing up, it was always presented to me as a future tense concept. One day, Jesus is going to come back. Well, that's true. That's true. And I still believe that. When Jesus comes back, he will establish a literal kingdom here on earth. Well, I, you all don't have to agree with me on that, but I, I happen to believe that's true too. 
I, I get that there's some, some, some difference of opinion around but I, I do believe that. But the application over the years started making less and less sense to me. All right, so I, all right, well, if the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is future, what's the object? Like, what are we here to do? And this was the sole answer. Get people saved. And for some of you, that's like, well, isn't that the answer? Yeah. Well, let's think about this. Get them saved. Get them to pray a prayer. Submerse them under the water. Get them on a church roll. And try to keep as many of them as you can coming back. Wait a minute. If they're genuinely followers of Jesus, we got to work like the devil to keep them coming back? Is there something wrong with that? Y'all heard that story about the, the three churches, the Baptist, the Methodist, and the Presbyterian. They all had problems with bats in the church. And they didn't know what to do. And the Presbyterian said, well, we used a bat box, but that didn't do anything. We still have a bat problem. And the Methodist said, well, we tried an exterminating service. That didn't do anything. We've still got a bat problem. The Baptist said, all my bats are gone. What did you do? We baptized them into the fellowship of the church and put them on the roll. We haven't seen them since. Get them to keep coming back? That is an exhausting enterprise. It just is. That's it, though. That's it. No, nothing else? No, because the kingdom is future. Don't worry about the kingdom. God will bring that later. You can contend some for just. You can help the poor. We give somebody a sandwich every once in a while. It, we can do some of that. But that's really an ancillary effort. And then I became an adult, and I started reading about the kingdom in the Bible. And it actually came to me as a young church planner. I was 29 years old. I was discouraged because a lot of church planners, especially if they're 29, they get really discouraged. And I, was, I went to lunch in Columbia, South Carolina with a guy named Bill Diekman. And Bill, uh, our staff have met him. He's helped us with some coaching and some stuff over the years. Bill, we were getting into Bill's car, and he looked at me before we got into his car for him to take me to lunch because I was a church planner, and I was just flat broke. So I got barbecue on Bill that day, but before that, I got a much more valuable lesson out of him. He says, you know, Joel, you seem, when you talk about the church and when you use language about the kingdom, you seem to conflate the two. You know, there's a very distinct difference between the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. And that just changed everything for me. I'm like, and I'm, I'm 29. I'm like, well, what is it? He's like, that's why God gave you a Bible. Yeah, I'm not going to spoon feed this to you. I'm not going to give that. Like, you, you need to delve in. You need to see the distinction between the two. And I started noticing as I did that, first off, Jesus' statements about the kingdom. He didn't speak in the future tense. He spoke in the present tense. You ever read the Bible after reading it for like two decades and went, how in the heck did I miss that? What, am I dumb or something? That was me at just, just before 30 years of age. The present tense. Then I read the book of Acts, and I came to this conclusion. The apostles acted, spoke, sacrificed, as though they believed the kingdom was a here and now kind of thing. And then I started noticing something else. The irrefutable, permanent connection that Jesus made between the gospel and the kingdom. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And then I saw the people that came before Jesus. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. And I start to come to this unavoidable conclusion that to preach the gospel is to preach the kingdom of God. This is the, the, the irrefutable fact of the New Testament. And preaching the kingdom of God, some of you will feel better after I say this, it is never one ounce less than Jesus died for your sins and you need to repent and believe the gospel. But it is exponentially more than that. It's not merely, let's get as many people to pray a prayer as possible. As many people to, the focus and what we're going to see this morning, if we'll focus on the kingdom of God, we will see more of that earlier thing. Of people, get, we need to get people saved. I agree. So focus on the kingdom. Do the work of the kingdom. Manifest the kingdom. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And that has many implications, but, but none stronger than this one. And I hope this will encourage you. Jesus is not merely waiting to be king. He already is. We, we forget this. And that changes everything. Paul would express it in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Let me summarize that briefly. Everything you can touch with your senses and the stuff that you can't touch, the stuff you see and everything that exists that you can't see, whether it's a seat of authority, a realm of authority, a personified authority, every bit of it is there and it exists because he has declared it into existence. That sounds a lot to me like the very definition of absolute sovereignty. That should change everything about the way we act and believe and serve in this world. So what does that look like? Let me share that with you, but, but first let me, let me issue some caution here because there's a couple of errors that come when we start talking about the kingdom. The first is the activist error, and it is exclusively in the West this belief that advancing the kingdom of God is about taking over the political power structures. All right, and, and it, let me tell you where that ends. It ends with the kind of divided church nonsense we saw about three years ago and that we will see about a year from now. The question is whether we're gonna be obedient to Jesus or whether we're gonna act like fools. That's the difference. Am I being too strong? No, I don't think I am. Are we gonna be obedient to Jesus? I love y'all, you know that, right? Are we gonna act like fools? Are we going to, well, I can't believe you'd vote that way. I can't believe you'd vote this way. I can't believe you I'm not going to go to church with somebody who's going to, I'm not going to. You know where all that comes from? The conflation of the kingdom of God with the systems of the world. I can't believe living in 2023, I actually have to say it, but politicians are worldly. They lie. Which ones? All of them. All of them. Listen. Voting is important. Political convictions are important. They are not ultimate, not even close to ultimate. And when you act like they are, here's what happens. You shrink all this down merely to somebody, how, which, by the way, when you cast a vote, you are making a single binary decision that affects a wide range of highly nuanced positions and actions. You don't control nearly as much as you think you do with your vote. And neither do I. 
But man, the world has got us obsessing all over that mess, doesn't it? And that's what happens. You shrink everything down to merely how to, and now we're defining who's Christian and who's not. By which political party they're affiliated with. And this happens on the right, and it happens on the left. It makes me nuts. It's like a bunch of adults acting like eight-year-olds who got a bigger scoop of ice cream. Who started it? Who did it first? Are you as tired of that nonsense as I am? I mean, it's an absolute insane merry-go-round. And it's all because we have diminished the kingdom of God to the systems of the world and made it all about how somebody casts a vote. And all that does is divide the body of Christ from each other and diminish the meaning of the kingdom. That's what the activist model does. Now, there's an opposite to this, and it's the isolationist model, or what I might call the prepper model. <laughs> Completely separate your civic and political thinking from anything resembling religious faith and just become a cultural hermit, start all of your own institutions, isolate as much as you can from the world. Some of y'all have got that. It's I love you, but you've got to circle the wagons mentality. And what you've forgotten is that sin is not out there. It's in here. Listen, if I could protect my wife and my children from all the sin in the world, I, I would, but I can't. Because even if there was a way for us to be a self-contained unit, they got to live with their daddy. You get this? Right? So that isolationist model doesn't work either. It's not about activism. It's not about isolationism. The role of the church is influence. And, and there are going to be times where it seems like that's successful. And there are going to be other times where it seems like it's not so successful. But we influence. Right? You, you, do, you think, do you think the American ambassador to Israel feels like he's having a great ton of success right now? Probably not. But I bet you he's doing his job. Amen? I bet you he's doing his job. And that's what this looks like. And In fact, Paul gives us that very metaphor, 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And two verses earlier, we're told that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we're now brought into reconciliation with God. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation that he wants us to take to the world. So we're ambassadors. That's what it means. My friend Omar Reyes, a pastor in Texas, his mom is Belizean, his dad's a Palestinian. Uh, they immigrated here to the States. He grew up here, became a U.S. Marine, and he loves to tell the stories about places where he would go around the world to guard American embassies abroad. And I love hearing him tell that story because it makes a great example of the kingdom of God. And usually what he'll do is he'll say, when you, when you are in my native Belize or you're in somewhere in, in Gaza or you're somewhere in like, like where our folks just got back from in Vietnam and you, you want to make a trip to the American embassy, okay? Or let's, let's flip the script for a moment, all right? Because our, our team just got back from Vietnam. If I want to visit the Vietnamese embassy, I go to Washington, D.C., and once I step onto the property of the Vietnamese embassy, where am I? I'm in Vietnam. That is sovereign Vietnamese soil, even though it's right in the middle of Washington, D.C. That's the essence of what it means to be an embassy. What does the ambassador in that building do? He or she represents their government to the government of the United States. This is what Paul is using as a metaphor to tell us this is what we do. Churches are embassies. And you and I, as part of this church, are ambassadors. Where's our kingdom? Look at your feet. Wherever it is, that's where we're present. 
What is sovereign soil with regard to the Lordship of Jesus? Everywhere, including the places we can't get to, the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean, the deepest recesses of space that you and I will never see and never touch with our Savior. All of that is the sovereign territory of our Lord Jesus, and we are his ambassadors. And the kingdom is everywhere. Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's inside of you. It's all around you. Right? And, and you and I, we're ambassadors, not legislators. God wrote law. We don't write law. That's above our pay grade. We're not a part of the executive branch where the Lord, the Lord alone claims exclusive rights to justice and vengeance for evil. We're not the judicial branch that sits in judgment on others. We're ambassadors. And ambassadors have one role. Accurately and faithfully represent your king. Now, how does he want us to do that? That takes us back to Matthew 6. The most powerful sermon. I want you to think for a moment. This is a part of Matthew that we've not covered together. About three years ago, we talked about the Beatitudes, and we moved through that series called Blessed, and just sort of moved through the early parts of, of Matthew 5. Perhaps we'll, we'll come back maybe even sometime next year and take up the rest of this sermon. This, this is the most powerful sermon ever preached in the whole history of humanity by the absolute greatest preacher who ever lived. It's a sermon worth hearing. Its influence stretches across time and oceans and even, even across religions, in fact. Augustine in the 5th century called it the perfect standard of the Christian life. Those of you who have been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer along with me know that he based all of his famous work, The Cost of Discipleship, on an exposition of this very sermon. And even Gandhi, who wasn't even a Christian, lived it better than a lot of Christians, if we'll just be honest, leveraged its teachings to influence his native India toward a peaceful revolution. And conversely, though, Wherever you find contempt for this message, it's usually around people who prefer power over truth. Friedrich Nietzsche, the skeptic philosopher who corrupted Western thought with the idea that objective truth is just an incoherent concept and an attempt to oppress other people, said this part of scripture was the root of slave morality. If you obey this, you're gonna be no better than a slave. It's just, there's nothing gonna do. Let, let's bring this down. To a little bit more earthy level let's get beyond a philosopher maybe that you haven't heard of and let's talk about donald trump jr who told a large crowd gathered at a political meeting about two years ago that whole command of jesus to turn the other cheek has gotten you nothing and yet jesus says in this sermon if you're going to be my ambassador and represent me with accuracy this is precisely how you will live is Jesus really Lord? There's a lot of that right here. But let's think about these commands for a minute. Can, let's, let's be honest. Let's consider the cause. Is Nietzsche right? Is Trump right? Trump Jr.? In, in a world of va that values strength and power, Jesus tells us to be meek. There's a world filled with war. He tells us to make peace. In a world where disagreement and conflict sometimes turns violent, he says you need to have mercy. In a world with all manner of immoral values and practices, he says, I want you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want you to do it differently. 
Elsewhere, he tells us that to be first is to willingly be last. If we want to save our lives, we first have to lose it. Does kind of seem upside down, doesn't it? Think maybe Nietzsche or Trump Jr. have a point? On the surface, does this kind of sound like it? It seems upside down. Here's the absolute truth. It is a slave morality, and it will not give you anything. And in fact, obeying these commands and living this kind of life makes absolutely no sense at all unless there is something called the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is right here, right now. Then it makes all the sense in the world. Unless Jesus isn't waiting to be king, but does in fact sovereignly rule at this moment. But if Jesus is king now, and his kingdom is a present reality, this is the only way to live. This is it. Which means it's the only way for the church to function. Jesus knows this. Jesus, don't you think Jesus knew 2,000 years ago that you and I would be living in the middle of this culture that seems sometimes like it's on the verge of cannibalizing itself? And so he tells us the following. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. The church in its current state, by and large, is incredibly anxious. I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm not calling it the individual stuff that's troubling. I, I'm talking about corporately, like the body of Christ and in our affiliations with other people, in our relationships with other people. Let me tell you, what, what's happened is, is we've grown anxious because there's a lot of stuff that was once tight that is now very loose. And we don't know if it's ever going to get tight again. And some of that is even in relationships. That's because, that's a sermon for next year. We're going to get into a whole series going through First John on the one another's. But I, I'll tell you this for right now. A little free sample for what's coming. Our culture loves to talk about allies. Allies on the left, allies on the right. Let me tell you why allies are not what you should be looking for. Because allies are always connected to a cause, which means that relationship is inherently conditional. And once there is disagreement, and there will be, because there's two of you, the ally relationship ends. We need to reestablish friendships. Brother, sister relationships. Then maybe we could get somewhere. We have lost in the church a lot of cultural influence. There's a shrinking amount of people in the Western world who even are willing to identify as Christian. And our anxiety against that is most prominently displayed in, in how we react to that. And if you want to escape that anxiety, you have to believe and put into practice what Jesus says here. Go on, let's go on to verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He'll go on to speak of clothing and other needs as something we're prone to obsess over. And then he says there's a way for you to go never wanting in the king's world. Remember that Jesus already gave his life for his church. That ought to be proof enough. He will never break a promise to you or to me to take care of our needs. But when we forget this, we become just like the world. Jesus knew that as well. So he says in verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The world's mindset has become the church's mindset. Too many churches have become just like the world. 
because we are not focused on the kingdom. Which brings us back to verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of the Democrats, of the Republicans, of my right to do this or do that. No, seek first the kingdom of God. Do you really believe that? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, don't act like a fool. Act like somebody who belongs to Jesus. And all these things will be added to you. And actually, the, it's a present tense imperative, so it could be rightly translated. Keep on seeking. You know what that means? Every morning when I get up, my eyes open, I start seeking the kingdom. All the way to the time that my eyes shut at night, I am seeking the kingdom. I want everything on earth just as it is in heaven. Even if there are things about heaven that I don't see yet, don't understand, and don't even know how all of that is going to work out, I want what's up there down here. And I know I'm not going to be able to get it in the way that the world promises me that I can get it. So keep on seeking two constant pursuits, the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Pursuing those in the way described in the Sermon on the Mount means we live a radically different life that is reflective of values manifest in the rule and the reign of Jesus. He's the center of everything for me. So let's talk about what that looks like for us. Just in this, believe it or not, this is my conclusion, but I want to give you four expressions. What I think that's going to look like with covenant. What do we need to do? How do, who do we need to learn from? Like, what, what does it look like for us to become more conscious of the kingdom of God? Number one, substantive connection here and globally with the poor, the persecuted, and the underprivileged. Because if I could just be so bold, they understand this a heck of a lot better than we do. Because they've had to live in it. They've had to do it. African-American theologian I was with in Nashville just a couple of, couple of weeks ago reminded me that the Anabaptists, that persecuted group of Europeans who were skewered and tortured and killed because they would not baptize their babies. They didn't believe in it. And so what you have is religious persecution. They never wrote a comprehensive systematic theology. And my brother reminded me of the reason for that. They didn't have time. They were on the run. They were suffering, but obedient. Obedient. That's the measuring stick, right? Kingdom of God, righteousness of God. We think about some of the harder areas where we already work, and we do some great work. But what we have to make sure is let's discipline ourselves not to merely think of those individuals as just recipients of our charity and goodwill. They're a lot more than that. We've got to start thinking of those places and people as partners in the work and teachers to help us understand better the world that Jesus died to save. If you don't believe that, think about the people that Jesus chose. The people that were cut from the team that would have otherwise been rabbis. The people that nobody else would have thought would have amounted to anything. Those were the people that Jesus chose. And God has a habit of doing that. Building his kingdom by utilizing the foolish things of this world, the, the things that people most despise or ignore. Think about this for a moment. If I were to get hit by a bus and just be taken to heaven sometime this week, 
what would you do? What, do you what do you think would be a reasonable thing for your elders to do to replace and sort of fill the vacuum of the office of lead pastor? What would that look like? Hey, my heart beats just like yours, by the way. I could die. It could happen. I'm not planning on it, but it could happen. Has there, there, there's a, is there a procedure? Is there a process? Like, well, maybe. Do we go to the seminaries and look for somebody with a, with a PhD? Do we like, what do we do? What do we do? Let's look at the harvest. Let's look at the people we're ministering to, ministering with. I'm going to tell you something. If I, if I don't die and I make it to Medicare eligibility right here and then right off into the sunset, I, we really need to consider that my replacement, just as likely as anywhere else, could be alive right now, and he's some 14, 15, 16-year-old kid living in a home with a single mom in Fox Glen. But we don't think like that, do we? You know, our default is, let's go to what looks successful. Let's go to the institutions. Let's go here. Let's go there. This, is, this wasn't even the practice of Jesus when he lived here. When you serve the poor and you work in hard places, guys, that's not just something nice to do. You actually learn in the process of doing that. If you do it right, there's no way for us to even manifest the kingdom of God without those people. They don't just need us. We need them. So connection with the poor, the persecuted, the, the, the underprivileged. Number two, serving our community and the world comes before filling seats. Numeric growth by itself, about four years ago, it was obviously pre-COVID, because I remember this, someone, someone that I love, pastor, good guy, loves Jesus, I believe that with all my heart. He said, well, we're, we're finally consistently over a thousand people. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. That's, that's, what's next? What are you going to do? He goes, well, I'm talking to people who can help me get to 1,500. Is that it? Really? That's it? Where, what's the end game? 2,000 people? That's a mega church by sociological definition. Is that, is that where you want to be? So you can say, I'm pastor of a mega church? Like, what, what do you want to do? Like, this hits me really personally because what, what's going to happen when I stand in front of Jesus? Hey, God. Lord, look at what happened. Look at me. I came and there were this many. And then when I left, there were, there were this many. I, I don't think he's going to be impressed by that. Let me tell you why. In the first place, I'm not the one that added those numbers. Acts tells us the Lord adds daily to his church. Such as should be saved. But the second reason is, why did I have? Why are we given the hundreds of people that we're given? It's because there's 300,000 plus that need to see there's a different kind of world. Right within a 25-minute drive of this facility. 300,000 living in this world that's cannibalizing itself, where nobody trusts anybody anymore, where there's all kinds of ethical breakdown and issues, where there's violence, where we don't know World War III is going to start. We don't, we don't know. But here's what we can do. We can demonstrate with our lives. Down here, just like up there. 
There's a way to do it. That's what you do. I, there's never been a time in the 2000 history of the church, year history, where we've had more resources and accomplished so little with it. I mean, I'm, I'm not angry about that necessarily, but it's just, it's a fact. What are we doing? Serving our community in the world has to come before filling the seats. Number three, moving from information to transformation. I'm going to talk about more of this next week when we talk about what does it mean to actually be a disciple of Jesus. But I will say this for the moment. We've been way too dependent on the classroom to make disciples. The classroom is important. It's not ultimate. And the result is we have, and I know some of you are like, well, I'm a teacher and I'm having a hard time getting people to come. I know that, but that's because they're on YouTube. It's, it's, not that, it's not that they don't want information. It's where they choose to get it from, but they're getting information because it's been ingrained in us as a culture that being a disciple is about having a gigantic head, even if you've got a shriveled up heart and barely any hands. So being a disciple isn't about what you know or what you think you know or what you think you've got figured out. It's about hearing and obeying. More on that next week. But a church that seeks first the kingdom, that's what we're looking for. Not more head knowledge, unless that head knowledge is one of many things that contributes to transformation of the soul. Number four, and finally, moving from believing it to living it. I mean, we can confess the Sermon on the Mount like the rest of Scripture is the Word of God. Like, I, I believe this is the Word of God. You all expect me to believe this is the Word of God. That is as it should be. Okay? If I were to get up here and say, I'm not sure Jesus said this. I've been reading these dudes from the Jesus Seminar, and, and I, I just think maybe this was pieced together by his early disciples. I don't know how much of it's reliable. Our elders would call a meeting, and y'all would never see me again. And that's as it should be. Amen? It's okay. You can, yeah, fire Joel if he teaches that. That's as it should be. But that confession that, yes, I believe every word of these red letters to be the words that came out of the mouth of the actual Jesus of history. Oh, and the black letters too, by the way. That by itself doesn't determine whether I really believe this. The real question is, am I living it? Am I willing daily to hold up Hold, up to, hold this up to my life like a mirror. That's what it means to live for the kingdom of God. So let me say just a couple things in conclusion here. Churches that experience growth spurts or, or signs of awakening, and we're seeing that right now. I mentioned to somebody the other day, I think it was one of our staff pastors, we're in a really sweet season right now. Staff's clicking really good. Um, I mean, it just it, on a number of fronts, I could just say, just in terms of a, a dashboard of measurements, like, like covenant's good, covenant's healthy, I'm excited about our future, all of those kind of things. The last time we were like this was November 2019. All right. So, and this is what tends to happen. We tend to look on the surface at all the wonderful things that are happening. And then we tell our neighbors, come and see. Right? And, and, and it's well-intentioned. It's well-intentioned. Come and see what God is doing. But it's legitimate to ask whether God is actually the one doing it. Is he? Now I believe he is. But, but it's a legitimate question. 
Because God's kingdom activity is described for us in the words of Jesus. If whatever is happening is absent of genuine kingdom investment and advance, if it's just about crowds of people or episodes of high emotionalism or excellent technology, nothing wrong with any of that. We have that here. And we're fine with all of that. But, but in our current environment, with the resources that we have, we can manipulate all that ourselves without any involvement at all of the Holy Spirit. And too often, I think, when churches say, come and see what God is doing, it actually is the case that God's not the one doing it. We're doing it. That's exhausting, by the way. That is a first-class ticket to burnout because you can't keep that up. That it, you, you can't keep appearances up if what's happening under the ground isn't really real. And, and, and you can find that anywhere. Those kinds of faith communities are a dime a dozen. Now, I believe God's at work here. I've seen it. I'm not sure we're being all that intentional about it yet. We're not even really giving that much away yet. We're not. What, what would happen if we became more purposeful with our sending? The sending of our people, the sending of our dollars. We have Christmas offering opportunities coming up here in just a few weeks. We're going to give away over $120,000 next year. That's, that's wonderful. It's also about what we take in in a month around here. So where are we going in the future? And here's what I believe. If we are always hyper-focused on our church, how many seats got filled? How much money's coming in? What about this? What about that? Did the graphics get right? Did the people changing the slides get it in time for you to know what the words are on the song? All that, none, none of that unimportant. But if all that becomes the hyper-focus, we may never get to the kingdom. But I want you to look at Matthew 6.33 again. Because what Jesus just told us is, if we start with, focus on, aim our resources at the kingdom, kingdom of God, righteousness of God, his promise is that we will always have a church. And that's what he's calling us to do. So here's my challenge. Let's seek that kingdom. What does that look like? The next three weeks are going to tell you how. Disciple, what does that mean to hear and obey? Society, this has to go beyond what happens in this building. This is why we don't do trunk or treat here on campus. We do it with the fire department because that's where our neighbors are. That's where the community is. This us for no more circle the wagon stuff. Nope, not what we're going to be about. Let's move forward and seek the kingdom. Let's look at finances and our physical plant and our energy, our people, our focus. And let's be prepared to just give it away for the sake of the kingdom. Because he is king right now. The kingdom is within and around you right now. Guys, let's act like that's true. Let's act like we look at this Bible, which we believe the word of God, and believe he's telling us the truth. And then let's watch what God does as we move into our future together as a church. Man, there's so much more I have to tell you, but you got to go. And I'm not going to stand between you and brunch. So we'll cover the rest of it going up to the Christmas season. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for your church and what you're doing. I thank you for this sweet moment. All of us would rather have sweeter moments than harder moments. And yet, Lord, 
you call us to be faithful in all seasons. And so no matter what is to come, Lord, prepare our hearts and our souls to live in faithfulness to you, no matter what the cost. Believing that it's worth it because you are king and your kingdom is here and now. So, Lord, make us good ambassadors. Make us good ambassadors. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.